Good afternoon. Good afternoon. We are delighted to see such a huge turnout for this event, um, and we're glad all of you were able to make time to come. My name is Peggy Little. I am the director of the Federalist Society Pro Bono Center, and I also write and publish on the topic of states' attorneys general. The topic today is reaching too far the role of state attorneys general. Um, there has been a lot of growing discussion concerning the appropriate role of state attorneys general. Some have argued that state AGs have overstepped their boundaries by prosecuting cases and negotiating settlements that have had extraterritorial effects and sometimes even national effects. Others argue that state AGs are simply filling a vacuum left by the failure of others, for example, federal agencies, to attend to these issues. We are delighted to have with us today four distinguished attorneys general. I'm going to introduce each one of them separately as they do their opening remarks, which will go from about eight to ten minutes um, up here, and then we will open the panel for a discussion amongst itself and then open the floor to questions. At the time we open the floor to questions, there will be a roaming mic, and we do ask that you wait for a mic to get to you before you ask your questions. Our first speaker will be Attorney General Robert F. McDonald. He was elected the 44th Attorney General of the State of Virginia in 2005. He has served on many major policy reform commissions, including the 2005 Crime Commission Task Force, uh, the Attorney General's Task Force on Youth and Gang Violence, and the Governor's Commission on Environmental Stewardship. As Attorney General in 2006, he initiated the Task Force on Youth Internet Safety Task Force and the Task Force on Regulatory and Government Reform. Attorney General McDonald. Well, thank you, uh, Peggy, very much for uh, agreeing to moderate this, uh, this panel, and uh, good afternoon. Great to be with all of you. I uh, assume there's a lot of Virginians here. Glad to have you. I even reported a few. Uh, we've got five interns from my office in Richmond that have all come up, and uh, we're delighted that they are here along with some other staff people, and I want to say thank you to the Federal Society for hosting this. It's a very timely and important role about the uh, role of um, state AGs and how they look at their role and uh, in uh, discharging their duties. I want you to, first of all, say that there, I, I don't know how I got stuck on the far left. I don't want you to be misled by my position. It's just alphabetical, in case you didn't figure out the order yet. That's why I'm first. Uh, some advantages and disadvantages to being first. The good news is nothing's been said yet, so everything I'm going to say is new. The bad news is my colleagues who are all distinguished and good friends will probably uh, be able to uh, disclose some new things to uh, uh, distinguish my, uh, to shine a light on my lack of knowledge in certain areas. So there's, it's a good news, bad news thing. Let me just tell you a little bit about my philosophy of government because it uh, talks, it transcends into this whole issue of the role of government. This won't be any surprise to you. I'm from the state of Madison and Jefferson, and we have a very uh, limited view uh, of what the role of government is in, in, in Virginia. It's one that's uh, carried through for for quite some time, and in some respects, no matter which party was in power, and that is that the role of government is 
is uh, is fairly limited to its enumerated powers, and that's what the uh, government, the executive branch in particular, is supposed to do, is to discharge uh, those duties, that the stronger that the private sector can be uh, made that uh, and the less that uh, government has to do to fix problems that's caused by either a broken private sector or a broken family, the, the better your state is. It's been a successful formula for a couple centuries in Virginia. We've just been ranked the most uh, business-friendly state in the country by Forbes magazine and having the second-best uh, tort liability climate, according to Director Suit magazine. And so we're very pleased with that. And the formula's been pretty simple. If you do what you can to encourage private, uh, the private sector and strengthen the competitive climate for entrepreneurs to pursue their dreams, to create wealth, to create jobs, to create opportunities, to keep taxation, regulation, and litigation low. You've got a formula uh, where free enterprise can thrive. And so that's um, the formula we think has worked well in Virginia. That's why I look at government, and I kind of carry that same view into the, the office of the Attorney General. Uh, by statute and constitution, we have various uh, enumerated roles uh, of what um, I'm supposed to do, which is basically... Um, uh, defend the state as plaintiff and defendant, give advice to agencies, uh, render opinions, uh, handle criminal matters, uh, and basically stay out of the way and let uh, the rest of the state agencies do what they do uh, best. And so that's uh, just, I guess, as a, as a beginning point, uh, what uh, the way I look at this in terms of the role of the AG. You're going to be sadly disappointed if you think there's going to be a tremendous amount of diversity on this panel for those of you that uh, – we're expecting that. We've um, talked a little bit, and I think that there will be some, some common, common threads there. And I think really when you look at what this organization has long stood for at the Federalist Society, you want to uh, – the, the belief is that all wisdom does not reside in Washington, that uh, Article 5 uh, of the Constitution means something. Article 1, Section 8 limits what Congress is supposed to do and uh, that the rest of the power may, is retained by the laboratories of democracies that Jefferson believed was the states. And so uh, that, again, is uh, kind of what I bring into the office of the, uh, of the attorney general. There are others that have a different view. Uh, many of them are listed in this periodical here that you uh, might have gotten on the way in. I was delighted to see my name is not in there, uh, but I was instructed it was the only reason is I haven't been an attorney general long enough. So that was disappointing to hear that that was the only reason. But uh, Hopefully I will not appear in there. I, was not, I also noted that uh, five of the ten that are in here are no longer here. In fact, one of the replacements is actually on the panel today, who you'll be hearing from uh, sometime soon. But I think that uh, some do have a rather uh, different view than I've just described in terms of a more activist role of the attorney general, which uh, I think is an, is an extension of the philosophy of uh, the activism that you see in certain uh, judges uh, on the courts and believing that uh, either judges or attorney generals should be agents of social uh, change and use every power of their office to create whatever theories of liability that might be uh, that might be at all plausible in order to achieve some sort of desired social aim, whether it's the redistribution of wealth or additional levels of corporate responsibility or whatever uh, that AG might think is, is appropriate. It seems part and parcel of uh, of uh, the same activist philosophy that guides uh, certain certain jurists and certain uh, legal scholars uh, when it comes to uh, moving an agenda forward. I don't think activism of the right or left is appropriate because the, the rule of law requires that you discharge your duties according to the statutes uh, and, uh, and the Constitution. I think that the role of policymaker is le really left to those who are elected to do that, which is primarily the legislature, the attorney general and the governor and the other agencies are 
executives who are to faithfully discharge those laws and not create uh, new things uh, out of uh, out of whole cloth. And so uh, that's the way that I try to run uh, run uh, my office. Uh, I think that uh, a differing view is that people think that uh, there are there are many problems in society that all of us in government have some duty to try to address. And this uh, the whole notion of it's it's your job not just to follow the statutes and the Constitution, but to do something to fix problems that kind of leads into this uh, desire uh, to uh, to be an activist, as some have done, and that is to use the courts as an agent of change as opposed to the legislature and executive uh, branches where there might more conservative philosophy as exhibited by people in certain states might elect one kind of person to legislature or executive branch, uh, but judges who are uh, both appointed but primarily uh, both appointed and elected uh, might be able to uh, be those agents of change. And I think it's that similar mindset that many attorney generals have used to advocate uh, advocate for uh, for activism within within their office. Uh, I do think there are certain types of activism, though, that are appropriate for the Attorney General. Let me just give you a couple uh, ideas of uh, what I'm doing in my office that I think are appropriate levels of activism. One would be uh, advocating change in policy uh, to the legislature. Uh, I've got about 225 lawyers. They're in and out of every state and federal court uh, every day. Uh, they know some of the things that need to be fixed, and whether it's technical changes in the statutes or whether it's policy changes that we can recommend, but that level of activism is combined to being the advisor, if you will, to the General Assembly. And so my office regularly makes uh, recommendations. We made about 45 or so last year to the General Assembly, and most of them got passed. Uh, and we zealously advocated for those changes in the committees in front of the legislature in order to get some of those things done. I think that's an appropriate role of activism for, uh, for the legislature. Secondly, as we've got a big uh, project going on in our office now uh, to look at the regulations, we've got about 24,000 pages of them in Virginia. Uh, some of them were done when they started. Some of them were good. Some of them were outdated. Some of them, the cost of compliance is too great, and we want to be able to give advice to our clients, to some 200 boards and commissions and agencies, on changes that they ought to make. And so we're being real active in looking at those regulations. Some have been on the books for a year, some for decades, about which ones that they ought to fix, change, eliminate or seek statutory release so they don't have to promulgate them in the first place. And so I think that's an appropriate role as the advisor to those clients to be active in recommending that. A third one is in the policy front and deals with uh, deals with immigration. There's been an absolute, I think, abdication of the responsibility of the President and the Congress on this issue. And so in Virginia, we're looking at every possible tool under Section 287G of the uh, Immigration Naturalization Act and some other tools that we've got in Virginia to be active in order to safeguard the um, uh, the security of our citizens, and to look for ways to uh, to enforce the law in Virginia. Some would call that activism, but uh, in the failure of the federal government to act, uh, that's an area that I feel uh, pretty compelled to act in. So those are just a couple of the thoughts that I've got about the role of the Attorney General. We have uh, significantly resisted from uh, finding uh, new theories of liability uh, against uh, Corporations are joining in to a, a large number of multi-state suits uh, unless we felt it was something significantly meritorious or a benefit to the citizens uh, of Virginia. And so I believe that that is what the proper role of the Attorney General is. And with that, I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Our next speaker is John W. Southers. Um, he is the Attorney General of the State of Colorado. Um, he served as a Deputy uh, and Chief Deputy District Attorney in Colorado Springs in his early career. He also headed the Economic Crime Division of the DA's office and has a solid background in law enforcement. Uh, in 2001, Mr. Southers was nominated by President George W. Bush to be the United States Attorney for the District of Colorado, and in 2005, he was appointed Attorney General of Colorado, and in November 2006, he won election to that office of Attorney General by a large margin. We're very happy to have Attorney General Southers here today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Well, my thanks to the Federalist Society for the invitation to join you and discuss a topic that I think needs to go beyond the Wall Street Journal editorial page, beyond law review articles, beyond uh, policy papers issued by free enterprise think tanks, and become more of a broad public discussion. And hopefully our discussion today will help it uh, to become a matter of broader public interest. What exactly is attorney general activism? Is it capable of definition, or is it simply a case of you know it when you see it? Let me give you three I-knew-it-when-I-saw-it examples uh, and then try to define it. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, gas prices rose sharply. The public was angry, perceiving that the rise in price was more the result of corporate opportunism than market forces. The state AGs always wanting to be perceived as diligent problem solvers, weighed in with their concerns. The FTC and several state AGs initiated investigations. And I distinctly remember a nationwide phone conference in which the FTC gave the AGs a preview of a report that they were going to issue the next day. Essentially, the FTC, as well as the state AG investigations, found no systemic wrongdoing. They concluded that the rise in prices was attributable to market forces, including the highly volatile uh, spot and futures markets. Various AG investigations reached similar conclusions. I thought that would be the end of the matter and that the phone conference would ra wrap up rather quickly. Uh, but a veteran attorney general from the Midwest interjected and made what I considered an amazing assertion. In fact, I had to write it down, and I quote him. Just because we haven't found anything illegal doesn't make it right and doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything about it, he said. We need to do something about these obscene profits, unquote. Folks, that's the mindset of an activist AG. Luckily, market forces shifted a few weeks later, and attorneys general interest in the issue declined at about the same rate as gas prices. <laughs> in 2006, shortly before he left office, California Attorney General Bill Lockyer, now the treasurer of California, filed a lawsuit against the world's six largest car makers. In the suit, California seeks to recover damages for all environmental damage caused by automobiles since their invention. It's California's contention that the cars are a public nuisance. The manufacturers... I'm serious about this. That's what the pleadings say, right? You guys have seen them. Yes, sir. The, uh, the, the California is contending that the cars are a public nuisance the manufacturers have inflicted upon it. 
The suit ignores the fact that the California legislature long ago passed the nation's strictest auto emission standards and that the companies have specially manufactured a significant portion of their fleet in order to comply with California law. The suit, by the way, also doesn't deal with the reality that California uh, constructed an enormous highway system to accommodate this alleged public nuisance. Uh, I've suggested to some that maybe California should countersue uh, or that the automobile manufacturers should countersue California and allege that the freeways are an attractive nuisance. <laughs> Folks, I once again believe that this case is a great example of AG activism. Finally, at present, some of my AG colleagues are contemplating possible legal action against social networking sites on the Internet. And while I fully share their concern, and I assure you that the three active AGs here fully uh, share concerns about the threat to children from sexual predators on the Internet and are strongly urging the companies who operate these sites um, to act responsibly by taking reasonable steps to protect children, I was curious about a possible legal th theory for a suit against the operators of such sites. And uh, I asked uh, one of my fellow attorney generals who's kind of leading the charge. Well, you can probably guess it. Attractive nuisance uh, was the reply as a possible theory for action against the Internet operators. Folks, if a suit should proceed on those grounds, Colorado will not be a part of it. My definition of AG activism is this. It's when an attorney general attempts to remedy a real or perceived problem through means other than that intended by a legislative body. My test in determining whether to exercise the state power of Colorado to sue someone is simply this. Has a law of the state of Colorado been violated, and is there sufficient evidence to prove it in court? Uh, I will not bring a legal action to stop any conduct, uh, regardless of how egregious it may appear, if the legislature has not provided me a means to do so. Now, I, like uh, General McDonald, will not hesitate to lobby the legislature if I think there should be a remedy that they should create uh, for actions by the state attorney general. Do I join multi-state actions? You bet I do, if I believe the defendant has violated Colorado law. For example, we've recently caught pharmaceutical companies whose patents on certain products were about to expire essentially paying off potential generic competitors to stay out of the market. That's a violation of the antitrust laws of Colorado, and a multi-state action is a very efficient and effective means to resolve it. In fact, culpable corporate defendants often view multi-state actions as a preferred method of resolving numerous claims. But there have been several multi-state actions where the best and most creative Legal minds in my office could not conjure up a viable legal theory under Colorado to support our participation. Unfortunately, those cases tend to go forward because the absence of a credible legal theory has thus far not been much of a barrier uh, to success for state AGs who regularly bring such cases. Why is that? Why are these cases typically successful? I believe it's because when threatened by suit by multiple AGs, most public, publicly held companies conclude they can't afford to fight. And I don't mean they can't financially afford to fight. They make lots of money and they can afford great lawyers. But they also have a fiduciary obligation to their shareholders. And experience shows that bad headlines generated by a suit by state AGs will likely do more damage to a company's market capitalization, their stock price, 
than any verdict five or ten years down the road. So there's a great temptation to settle if the price isn't perceived as being too high. The companies know it, the AGs know it, and so the suits typically settle. And for many of the AGs, such activism has become very good politics. Look at Elliot Spitzer's margin of victory in the last election. And they have taken on the mantle of the corporate dragon slayer. I believe the only effective remedy for AG activism is action by the state legislatures to statutorily curb it. They could do so by curbing the nature and scope of AG consumer protection powers and by preventing them from delegating the exercise of state police powers to private attorneys. But in the meantime, in the last decade, in the aftermath of the tobacco litigation, a cottage industry has sprung up. There are now hundreds of people making a very good living lobbying AGs. A couple of them are here today. Uh, when the 50 state AGs get together to discuss issues, there's often 100 or more lobbyists in the back of the room looking for an opportunity to further their cause. Typically, they're trying to convince the AGs not to sue their client or to otherwise seek to regulate them or to join or not join an amicus brief perceived to be uh, to their benefit or to their detriment. Coming from my background as a district attorney and a U.S. attorney, I find all this lobbying pretty disconcerting, but I've also come to understand it. I once asked the general counsel of a beer company. Uh, they'd come in. I'd been in office about six months. They came into my office. The general counsel came in, and they brought with them uh, a former AG who had essentially initiated the tobacco litigation, which I consider the tipping point of, of uh, this whole issue. Uh, and I asked the general counsel of the beer company as we were walking out, we were walking behind the other folks, and I, I said, don't you think it's ironic that your company has hired a former AG who was instrumental in bringing the tobacco litigation to uh, lobby uh, current AGs on behalf of the beer company? Um, the general counsel didn't think it was funny. Uh, <laughs> looked me straight in the face, responded without hesitation, we don't want to be the next tobacco. And folks, I understood completely. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Southers. Our next speaker, Donald Stenberg, is the former Attorney General of the state of Nebraska. He also served as legal counsel to the governor of Nebraska. Um, like um, some of the other gentlemen here today, he also has a background in uh, an MBA in business school. He's also a founding member of the Republican Attorneys General Association. He's counsel at the present time to Erickson and Saderstrom. Uh, Mr. Stenberg brings some very interesting um, uh, background uh, to this discussion because he's a former member of the National Association of Attorneys General Executive Committee, fondly known as NAG. Uh, and so he brings that perspective and experience. He was also Attorney General of the State of Nebraska during the tobacco litigation, which, as our speakers have indicated, was really the watershed um, litigation that has led to um, conferences such as these as to how far those initiatives shall go. Attorney General, former Attorney General Stenberg. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you all for uh, coming today, and my thanks to the Federalist Society for uh, organizing 
uh, this meeting. Uh, I'm going to talk um, about two basic subjects. One is uh, the use of uh, contingent fees by states to hire outside counsel to represent the state, uh, which I believe is, is not an appropriate practice. I've written a paper on that that's, that's out on the table out there, and that will be the principal subject of my remarks. And then I'm going to very briefly uh, go through a list of what I see as some of the checks and balances available on attorney general power, and I'm not going to have time to go into any detail on those, but if there are questions or if the other panel members want to come on, comment on those, we can talk about those a little bit uh, as well. well regarding uh, states hiring outside counsel on a contingent fee basis, you need to, I think, go back to basic principles, which is why uh, the practice of, of having contingent fees arose in the private sector. And the policy underlying that is, is that there are individuals of relatively modest economic means who may have been injured uh, in an automobile accident by a defective product in the workplace or whatever, and they didn't have the financial means to seek legal redress. And so contingent fees grew up as a policy that was accepted by the Bar Association, an exception to the basic rule that, a, that an attorney is not supposed to have a financial interest in the client's business. States, on the other hand, are not paupers. They are not of limited financial means. Uh, they have the power to tax. Even a relatively small population state like Nebraska measures its state budget in the billions of dollars. Uh, so the, the policy that allows contingent fees in private cases for people who can't afford lawyers simply does not apply to a state that has ample resources to bring any lawsuit that the legislature is willing to appropriate funds for. Um, secondly, I think that, that the payment of a contingent fee uh, may very well be unconstitution, unconstitutional under the constitutions of many states. I believe every state, the power of the purse is in the state legislature. Only the legislature can appropriate funds for the expense, uh, for the expense of government. Very important public policy tool. Uh, now, when you enter into a contingent fee agreement and it comes time uh, to pay the fee, uh, there's no appropriation of that money. And I think every state attorney general has the constitutional or at least statutory authority to hire outside counsel uh, on an hourly fee basis when there's a conflict of interest or when special expertise uh, is needed. But when they do it on a contingent fee basis, they're really invading the executive, their legislative power of the purse. Um, and I think that, that uh, those who are interested in this subject uh, could challenge this in one of two ways. You could bring a lawsuit uh, asserting that the, these fees should not be paid because they would be a violation of the state constitution unless and until the legislature appropriates it. Secondly, a legislature could simply pass a statute making clear that, that contingent fees uh, are not uh, allowed as an accepted means uh, of representing the state so that if you had a major lawsuit, the attorney general would have to come to the legislature and obtain appropriation in order to pursue it if, if he or she didn't already have sufficient funds uh, available for that purpose. And the third, uh, the third reason I think that contingent fees uh, are inappropriate for a state uh, to use, a state attorney general to use, is that, that there is there's a, a difference interest. A contingent fee lawyer has a different interest than what a state's legal officer has. By definition, a contingent fee lawyer's objective is to obtain the largest possible financial judgment or settlement 
from the defendant or defendants. The state attorneys general uh, has broader interest in that. They certainly have an interest in, in obtaining penalties or, or recovering funds for the state, but they have a broader public policy uh, interest um, in seeing that justice is done, and that's not always done by the largest uh, fee. And let me give you a hypothetical example that makes it a little easier to understand what I just mumbled. Um, let's assume that, <clears throat> that uh, there's a corporation uh, in a state that, that the attorney general thinks uh, violating the law, we need, to, we need to do something about that. But it's, it's a big company, it's a big case, doesn't have the resources in-house, so you do it on a contingent fee basis. Time goes on, trial level wins a $100 million judgment against the, uh, against the company on a 25% contingent fee. Well, this, this company is a large employer in the state employs tens of thousands of people. Um, and they've had some other problems. Uh, Chinese imports have hurt them, so they're on the verge of financial collapse. And if they have to pay this judgment, it's going to mean the company goes out of business and tens of thousands of jobs are lost in the state. Well, the Attorney General looks at this situation. We've now got an appeal pending. Attorney General looks at this situation and says, well, I don't want to punish these 10,000, 20,000 workers and lose this tax revenue from the state that this company generates. I'll see if I can work out a settlement. So the Attorney General works out a settlement, $5 million. Um, corporate off the responsible corporate officers are, are fired or resigned. Um, the company agrees to maintain, keep its business in the state and continue to, uh, to operate as long as it's able to do so. And so everybody's happy with that. The governor's happy. The legislature's happy. Company's satisfied. And then the contingent fee lawyers say, well, great job, Attorney General. By the way, you owe us $25 million. And they say, well, I only collected five. Well, that's, I understand, but you did the right thing, but you still owe us money. And that sounds like, oh, that could never happen. And yet something like that did happen in the tobacco lawsuits in some states. Some of the contingent fee lawyers in certain states were not satisfied what they got for attorney fees out of this agreement. And... Uh, there were lawsuits to recover millions and hundreds of millions of dollars of additional uh, attorney fees. So some attorneys general had real political problems arise out of these uh, agreements uh, as well. Well, let me talk very briefly, and I'm just going to mention these, about what I see as some of the checks and balances on, on state attorney general power. And first and foremost, and I put it first because I think it's the most important, is elections. There are candidates who in the last election cycle basically campaigned on the basis that if you elect me, I'll be the next Elliot Spitzer of my state. They're gonna, they campaigned promising to be activist attorney generals. And I can guarantee you, if they were elected, they will keep their promise. Have no doubt uh, about it. Um, elections are the greatest check and balance. If you elect the person with the right philosophy, I'm going to enforce the laws of my state, uh, but I'm not going to hire contingent fee lawyers. I'm not going to try and dream up new novel legal theories as a way to hold somebody responsible when our state legislature hasn't, hasn't made this a, a prohibited act. And so first and foremost, um, elections are the best way to avoid attorney general activism, electing the right person. Secondly, the legislature has a lot of tools, appropriations. Um, they can prohibit contingent fees. They can adopt a cheeseburger bill 
uh, that prohibits or that protects companies from certain types uh, of lawsuits, if that should be the public policy of the state. The Congress has a role. Uh, almost every attorney general lawsuit that becomes controversial has interstate commerce aspects to it. Uh, so the Congress, in appropriate cases, can preempt an area of the law. Uh, uh, fourthly, and I, I put this on the list without a lot of confidence in it, but in theory, the courts can be a check and balance on an activist uh, attorney general. And finally, uh, the defendants. And I don't have time to discuss this, and maybe we can a little later. John is, I agree with what John said. Uh, you're sued by a state attorney general, particularly you're sued by maybe 25 of them. Uh, and you're a publicly held company and your stock price goes down 25% the day the suit's announced. Um, and it's going to be a very long, expensive, drawn-out process. Even though you feel you haven't done anything in violation of the law, a lot of pressure to settle that, that lawsuit. And I've counseled clients in that situation to settle. But sometimes uh, a company is going to need to decide, listen, we haven't done anything wrong. If we settle here, the private tort bar is going to bring a bunch of additional uh, lawsuits, um, and this thing is going to keep going. So sometimes defendants have to make the tough choice that, you know, we haven't done anything wrong, um, and we're going, to, we're going to fight this in court uh, and, and win. And some of, the, uh, some of the Spitzer lawsuits that are now playing out, uh, some defendants have, have done that and seem to be, uh, to be prevailing. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Attorney General Stenberg. Uh, I have a particular interest in the contingency fee uh, issue, and, and uh, I will be directing some questions to the panel when we open up the discussion to that. Our next speaker is Attorney General J.B. Van Hollen of Wisconsin. He has a distinguished background in law enforcement, um, first as an assistant state public defender and then a federal prosecutor and an assistant United States attorney for the Western District of Wisconsin. In 1993, Governor Tommy Thompson appointed Attorney General Van Hollen as district attorney in Ashland County, where he served for six years. Um, he was then in 2002 appointed by President George W. Bush as U.S. attorney for Wisconsin's Western District. Um, in 2006, in November, he was elected as Attorney General and took office there in January 1, 2007. Um, attorney General Van Hollen apparently succeeds one of the ten worst attorneys general, <laughs> and we're delighted to have him here today. Thank you, and thank you, everybody. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Of course, it's, uh, I drew the worst card alphabetically and got to be fourth. Um, and it's really hard to add to what all of my elder statesmen had to say already. Um, but I think it's actually a great opportunity because uh, when I come to these things, I often think, and my, my old U.S. attorney pals over here will agree with me on this, that how can I compete in an intellectual conversation? Uh, but I don't think on this issue I necessarily have to. Because I really believe that the issue of activism in the Attorney General's office is just an issue of common sense. Uh, that's really what it boiled down to for me. It boiled down to that for me when I decided to run for office, and it boils down to that for me as I serve as, your, as Attorney General in Wisconsin. Um, there is something I believe that the three of us up here as Attorneys General currently have in common, and that is that we're all relatively recent additions to the group of Attorneys General in the nation. 
Um, and we all three sit up here holding the same philosophy. And we all three got in under somewhat unusual circumstances. If I remember correctly, General McConnell won by uh, McDonnell won by a couple of hundred votes. Three sixty. <laughs> <laughs> See, General Southers just won uh, re-election by a landslide in a state that wasn't inclined towards electing conservatives. And, of course, despite the fact that General McDonald says that he comes from the state of Madison, I come from the state of Madison. <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin is a state in and of itself that doesn't necessarily hold the same philosophy that I do on much of anything, except maybe football. Um, but I ended up succeeding in a very unusual cycle. As a conservative, I ended up succeeding at a time where no other statewide office that was previously held by a Democrat was won by a Republican. I ended up succeeding in a state that elected Republicans to nothing. Republicans lost, almost lost their overwhelming majority in the legislature. They did lose a huge majority in the Senate. Uh, we have a Democrat governor, and I'm the only constitutional officer in the state who is in the Republican Party. So how do I win? I win because I believe our message on the role of attorney general is common sense, and it's what the people of the state of Wisconsin and the people in general believe in and want to see. I think the problem that we encounter is the attorney general's races have become more and more high profile all the time. And we have that degree of prestige or popularity or unpopularity, as you may want to uh, phrase it, as being statewide elected officers where a lot of focus was. And I think that there's a belief by an awful lot of people that following up on those elections, they need to do something more, something bigger, something better in order to prove themselves. And that the job, the role of attorney general, if you truly look at what statutorily you are obligated and asked to do, isn't that complex. It isn't that flashy. It's not going to grab headlines. And you're going to have trouble having your power keep up to your prestige. And it's a running joke, and everybody's heard it, and I think it happens a lot of times in a lot of states that AG stands for aspiring governor. And if you are truly an aspiring governor, like Elliot Spitzer was, you're not going to grab the headlines by prosecuting an underground storage tank case and defending the state in mundane cases that are considered to be um, just regular cases that you're supposed to handle in the course of your duties. You have to do something unusual, something unique, something outside of the box to grab headlines. And I fear that we have too many people who are willing to do that for those purposes. But I believe also, exhibited by the attorneys general who are here today, that the general public wants attorneys general who will simply do their jobs, that will focus on the task at hand of being attorney general, defending the state, defending the state enforcing actions on behalf of the state that are violations of the law. I could talk about all the different areas where we need to represent the state, but it's easier to stand up here and say ditto, because we had three gentlemen already get up and talk about so many of those circumstances where we rightly should be involved and cases where we shouldn't be involved. And I truly hold to that philosophy. And I think beyond just that philosophy, we can show why it's so important and why we can do so much good. The contrast that was set up in my particular race, I think, is important to talk about because it was the epitome of a non-activist law enforcement professional against an activist non-law enforcement professional, whereas my predecessor was on the list of 10 worst and by everybody's standards would be considered to be an activist. That's not who I ran against. 
I won a primary election, and she lost her primary election. I ran against, ended up running against the Dane County executive. Dane County is Madison. Um, obviously, I ran against somebody who was an ultra-liberal, and her background showed that she was an activist. She didn't have a background in law enforcement. What she had done is worked in the attorney general's office for years as a public intervener. And in that role, her sole purpose was to advance her opinion, her ideals, her beliefs against the state of Wisconsin and sue them and intervene when she didn't believe they were doing things that were appropriate. We had a clear contrast for the people of the state of Wisconsin, and they got to see it. They saw it during the campaign. We compared apples to oranges. And during a time where the apples weren't supposed to win, the apples won, just like they did in other states that uh, are represented up here today. Because the people want somebody who's going to focus on law enforcement, somebody who's going to focus on consumer protection, but in the right way. And I'd like to give a couple examples of the way we're governing differently and governing by the book in a non-activist way that kind of shows, uh, proves the point, I guess. You had an example of uh, cars being a public nuisance in California. Well, we're a little more rural in Wisconsin than in California. In Wisconsin, we have a much graver and more grievous public nuisance, and that was cranberries. Um, you know, whereas cars may be dangerous, beware of cranberries. Um, albeit uh, a case that I ended up recusing myself from uh, before our office got out of the case, my predecessor had sued a cranberry grower under the public nuisance concept. That lawsuit had cost the people of the state of Wisconsin over a half a million dollars. My predecessor had sued two legislators in the state of Wisconsin because they wouldn't turn over drafts of legislation to her that weren't open records, but she wanted them to be open records. That suit cost the people of the state of Wisconsin a half a million dollars. I can go on with example after example where activism for the argued point of protecting the interests of the people of the state of Wisconsin through the auspices of consumer protection cost the state of Wisconsin great amounts of money. Yet at the same time, we've got attorneys general in other states who are suing uh, Internet providers because they believe they are a public nuisance uh, or thinking about suing those providers. There are other ways that we can actually protect the public and protect the consumer from actually what is hampering them. And that's why I tried to focus on the law enforcement initiatives. So much was made in Wisconsin of the backlog at the state crime laboratories, a horrible backlog. For every case that we brought into our crime laboratories, for every two cases, excuse me, one of them got added to the backlog. We lobbied the legislature very diligently to get resources to make sure that we could get rid of that backlog. With 31 new positions that were given to us, we believe it will still take us four years to catch up on that backlog. That is consumer protection, us standing up and making sure that the people out there in society are protected, first principles of government. We're now out there lobbying to get more resources and have more efficiency to protect our children with our Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force and what we're doing to help local law enforcement. There is no better consumer protection initiative that we can bring in the state of Wisconsin or anywhere else than protecting our children by taking the worst predators off the streets. Yet these are all within the confines, the enumerated duties of the Attorney General within the state of Wisconsin. And I would submit to you that we're providing not only law enforcement, not only being non-active, but we are also truly abiding by 
the statutes and the laws in the state of Wisconsin and the duties of the Attorney General. By using those resources that were otherwise wasted on a Cranberry lawsuit or a suit against legislators to actually protect our children and to protect our citizens from people when we weren't using the resources towards those things in the past. That's what I focus on. I think it's quite simple. Unfortunately, politics is politics. And I can tell you right now, after six months, because of some of my decisions not to intervene in cases or not to do certain activist things, I've become just as unpopular in some Republican circles as I have in Democrat circles. But I would echo what some of my colleagues have set up here. Activism isn't good no matter which way you slice it. And when we say we're opposed to activism as Republican elected attorney generals up here, and then we step up and we find that we have a cause that we're more interested in, we believe in, and we want to be a little more activist to advance that cause, and we get involved in it, we're no better than the people we ran to replace on that philosophy. I am going to make sure that I continue to do what I did uh, for the first six months, and that's travel around the state and tell people what we believe the role of the attorney general's office should be and to continue to fulfill that role. And as we do that, even though with the politicians we become less popular, I guarantee you with the people we become more popular. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time, and I look forward to your questions as well. I'm going to exercise my prerogative as moderator to... Um open with a comment and then ask two questions to the panel and then the panel uh, I, I would encourage them to um, ask questions of one another and then we will open it up to the audience. My first comment, um, Attorney General Stenberg really addressed the contingency fee um, issues quite um, I, I think comprehensively so um, I'm not going to ask a question on that but I do want to point out that on July 9th, 2007 uh, Adam Liptak, who is the national legal affairs correspondent for the New York Times, published a very interesting piece called If You Win, You Lose. And in that piece, he said, when someone who is exercising the state's power stands to gain from that, it violates due process. And if you got pulled over by a cop and the cop made more money if he gave you a ticket and less if he didn't, no one would think that was fair. There is also the question of whether hiring lawyers by promising them a percentage of what they win on contingency violates the separation of powers. So it's refreshing uh, to see the New York Times recognize this, in, this issue, which has been long ignored for approximately uh, 10 years. And I was very pleased to hear Attorney General Stenberg address that question. Um, also speaking to the tobacco um, litigation, um, a number of economic studies done by Jeremy Bulow, the Cato Institute, and Kip Viscusi have roundly criticized the settlement agreement entered into the state AGs, essentially on the ground that it lends the blessing of state governments to an industry cartel that has resulted in significantly increased prices for cigarettes. Public health advocates have also been highly critical of these settlements, noting that the state AG's deal has yielded little in the way of added health programs or benefits for smokers. I will also note that in one study, uh, it was found that in North Carolina, 73% of the billions of dollars going to the state of North Carolina are being used to support the production of tobacco. 
So my question for the panelists is, was the tobacco settlement a good deal, or is it something to be avoided in the future? Any of you can speak. You all have mics that should be on. Well, Gee, I I'll, think, I'll, uh, don't you grow uh, tobacco in Virginia, Bob? I think <laughs> you're going to take that. I'll lead off, I guess. Okay. Mostly because I was, uh, I was in office during the entire uh, uh, tobacco uh, situation. And I'll, in answering that question, let me just give a little background uh, from how a non-activist attorney general watched all this uh, develop. Um, when uh, Mississippi Attorney General Mike Moore first proposed this, and I don't remember the exact year, but I remember at a NAG meeting when he when he talked about his plan to, to move forward with this, uh, I'll have to tell you, I didn't think it, it was going to go anywhere. Uh, pretty much all of the theories uh, and one that emerged was, was states recovering their Medicaid uh, reimbursement. There were a number of other theories as well, but almost all of them, uh, I thought were, were, would be subject to uh, an assumption of risk defense because all of them basically placed the state in the shoes of the smokers, all of whom had seen these Surgeon General warnings that basically these things will, will, will kill you. Um, and so I, at least under laws in Nebraska, I didn't, think, I didn't think that this could possibly go anywhere. And, uh, but as time went along, uh, uh, it did, uh, and more and more states uh, Joined, uh, joined the battle and filed their own uh, tobacco lawsuits. Um, and I was, from time to time, asked by my local media, uh, well, are you going to file one of these? And for many years, and this went on for years, I, I would say, well, no, because in, in my opinion, uh, there's just there's no legal merit to it under the laws of the state of Nebraska. I mean, I explain the legal theory. Um, and then as time went along, these started to settle before the master settlement agreement for individual states. settled, And so once a couple of states settled for billions of dollars or the tobacco companies agreed to pay billions of dollars to a couple of states, it became pretty hard for me to explain to the public how there was no merit to these lawsuits. I mean, I might have been right on the law, but most Lay people think, well, nobody pays billions of dollars to settle a lawsuit if there's no, no merit to it. Uh, and plus, the governor, uh, under, under Nebraska law, the governor uh, can direct the attorney general to file a lawsuit, and you're obligated to do that. There's a statute that says that, unless you feel there's no legal merit. And I had finally gotten to the point where I couldn't stand up with a straight face and say there's no legal merit, even though I thought, well, I don't know how I'd win this case, but if they're paying billions, nobody's going to think there's no legal merit to this. And then finally, when the master settlement agreement was entered into, as was mentioned earlier here, at that point, the tobacco companies wanted all of the states to join it so that they could put this particular issue um, behind them. But Nebraska was the very last state to settle or to, to sue uh, before the settlement was entered into. We sued a couple of months uh, before the settlement was, was finalized, and we did it in-house. We didn't hire uh, outside, outside counsel. Uh, let me follow up on that with a very similar. So I think Colorado was the second from the last. And many of you may recall that uh, Gail Norton was the attorney general uh, and, uh, a, frankly, a libertarian until later in her career she joined the Republican Party so she could run for attorney general. But Gail is, in essence, a, a libertarian. Um, and I asked her one time why she joined uh, the tobacco uh, litigation. Um, and uh, she came up with a 
very good explanation. She sent the head of the uh, – as this case got farther along and they started settling, uh, she sent uh, the head of the Consumer Protection Division out uh, who spent two weeks reviewing all the documents. And I have to tell you, the problem with the tobacco litigation, despite everybody's uh, concern about it from free enterprise perspectives and uh, improper exercise of government power, is – there were some real smoking gun documents in the tobacco litigation. Unfortunately, there were some really, really bad documents in which they had very uh, conspiratorially suppressed uh, adverse information from the public. And Gale's conclusion was that they had, in fact, violated Colorado Consumer Protection Act. And, and uh, her case was based on violation of Colorado law. Now, having said that... Um, Peggy, what I think the the really kind of weird part of the tobacco litigation is now we're now in you know stage three, stage four of it, and we're trying the states are trying to uh, get more money uh, recoveries because the tobacco companies are saying to us um, we've lost money, we've lost market share as a result of our participation in that case, and we're trying to say oh no you haven't you've lost market share because you're uh, bad business people. And, I mean, this it's really kind of a weird world, and, and I, I think it was a very poorly structured settlement in hindsight. I don't blame the people that did it at the time. I'm sure they were doing their best, but uh, it, it really has created this bizarre world where the AGs are saying, uh, uh, oh, gosh, uh, uh, our suit really didn't accomplish what we wanted to, it to accomplish. You know, less people are smoking, you're losing money, and therefore we're not getting as much money, and that's a bad thing. I mean, that, it's a weird world. <laughs> okay. My second question is, um, with the Class Action Fairness Act, Congress sought to curb attempts by courts in individual states effectively to govern the country through, through the certification of nationwide class actions involving state law claims. Class actions of nationwide scope are now seen as the appropriate business of the federal courts, not the courts of, and funny, Madison should come up. We have the state of Madison, we have the state of mine of Madison, and we also have Madison County, Illinois, which those of you who follow mass tort suits uh, know to be a very interesting place for uh, class actions to be brought. Should we be similarly concerned about enforcement actions by individual state AGs that have nationwide effects, or does the presence of an AG rather than a state court as the gatekeeper for the litigation make a difference? I'll, t I'll take a whack at it. Um, <laughs> nobody seems to be jumping out. I think that this is an issue that's going to go uh, beyond the scope of activism uh, and appropriate role of the AG and go a little more towards states' rights. And an issue that I think many in this room and at this table um, have pretty strong feelings and positions about as well. There are, it's hard to address the right and wrong of situations like this uh, as a macro issue. And I think you really have to look at it at the more micro level. Uh, there are going to be situations where obviously it's more important that things be handled at the federal level, but there are going to be situations, and I think uh, my colleagues would probably agree, where uh, 
your particular state has a specific interest, even though this may have national repercussions, you may have a stronger or more particular interest in this issue than the federal government does or the federal government's willing to put forth. Um, because of that, I think we need to be real careful, even though I have a significant problem with all of these multi-state lawsuits, uh, with curbing our ability completely to bring lawsuits from states uh, when it's a naturally federal issue, because many times that can work to the detriment of your given state. Um, and in the instances where we actually have a state law uh, and state interests to represent, it's our obligation to do so, and I believe the states need to maintain that opportunity. Well, I guess I would I, I basically uh, agree. I would add that, that, that most of these involve interstate commerce issues, um, these types of lawsuits. And the, the, the Congress has been empowered to preempt the field if they want and to set uh, the ground rules. Um, and for a lot of reasons, in antitrust, for example, you've got both state and federal antitrust law. And it may be that from a, viewed from a national perspective that a particular merger, for example, uh, is not anti-competitive. Uh, but, but in a particular state, maybe these, maybe nationally the two competitors make up 10% of the market each. But in your state, these two companies that are about to merge each have 40% of the market, and, and it would be, have a severe impact on competition in your state. So you have an interest different than the federal interest. The Congress has not preempted the field, and, and there are state issues that are important, and that's, that's one uh, example of, of, of that. Um, the, this nationwide, there's no question that a single attorney general settlement by a single state attorney general can have an impact nationally on the way that company, uh, the defendant, um, acts in other states as well. But no state attorney general uh, acting by himself or herself settling a lawsuit can bind any of the other 49 states. Um, the state of Nebraska can enter into a, an agreement um, under Nebraska law that would prevent the other 49 state attorneys general from, from acting to enforce the laws of their state if the same violations occurred uh, in those states. Uh, and you do have bad actors sometimes out there. And they do act in many states with very similar or the same bad actions. And what happens typically in those is that when that's recognized and, and the defendant is going to step forward and deal with it is you do want as many of the states to join that settlement uh, to resolve the issue. Because if, you're, if you don't settle with everybody, um, there's a prospect for additional lawsuits and additional uh, litigation. So on the one hand, these multi-state actions are an awfully powerful tool that can be misused by state attorney generals. On the other hand, it can, um, in appropriate circumstances, uh, be the best solution uh, both for the states and for the defendants. Um, do the panelists have any questions they'd like to ask of one another this, at this point? Or should we open it up? I, I just want to disabuse J.B. Van Hollen of the notion that uh, it was his Federalist principles that led to victory in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, J.B., how many votes did you win by? More than 367. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like 368. <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, the incumbent did have a few other issues other than the ones that you alluded to. I just want to point that out. But go ahead. Well, at this point, I think. I, I, the, the point I want to make is I think all of us would agree that our activist AGs have gotten a lot of political 
a benefit out of their activism for the most part. I, you know, I appreciate what JB is saying. In certain instances, you can campaign against them uh, by a, a certain case they might have brought or something like that. But for the most part, uh, the reason why there's 31 Democrats and 19 uh, Republicans, and at one point in time there's only 14, and we were up to 21, now we're back to 19, I think this populism plays very well with the voters. That's my general view of it. I, I have a question for panelists. Bob, is that your real hair? Yeah. <laughs> is yeah. he forced to answer? <laughs> no. <laughs> I do have less now than before that election, though. <laughs> I think at this point it would be appropriate to open the, uh, the audience to questions. There's a mic right here. and uh, Your name again? Lisa. Lisa will be coming around and handing the mic to various people who have um, their hands up. I'd like to follow up on what uh, John was just addressing, and that is in light of recent events in Albany, New York, uh, the, the question I have is whether an activist attorney general should be reflexively disqualified from running for governor. <laughs> well, I would point out that his own attorney general has just issued a fairly devastating report, uh, report about his activities. That, uh, I think we're all familiar with the details, but it's fascinating because this is a train wreck that was bound to happen. It is. Actually, um, if you want to identify yourself before you ask uh, the question, please feel free to do so as well. Uh, you all may remember that uh, two or three years ago, a number of AGs from the Northeast filed a lawsuit against uh, electric power companies, led by Elliot Spitzer. The theory was that they produced electricity for consumers, and in the process they burned fuel, which generated carbon dioxide, which they argued would cause all kinds of damage to the environment. Um, that's arguable, of course. Uh, what concerns me, and I'd like your opinion on that, is that this action by the AGs uh, now opens up a new field for what I would call the vultures, who can now go out and sue companies like, let's say, American Electric Power that has big pockets and uses coal to generate electricity and argue that this is causing, uh, say, Hurricane Katrina, or it's causing the sea level to rise in uh, Florida. Uh, how do you view the situation in the future? And what do you think can be done about it? Well, I think you can start by making sure we got the right kind of people uh, in black robes on the bench that won't uh, won't tolerate that and will throw folks out on their on their ear. Unfortunately, um, certainly in some state courts like Virginia, we don't uh, uh, motions for summary judgment are about dead, and so a lot of things like that end up getting uh, getting to trial or even getting to getting to juries. So that's not as much true in the federal system, maybe in some other states. So I mean, we certainly need to do some continue to work on, on tort reform. Secondly, I think you do need to make sure that uh, collectively, as uh, not just as attorney generals, but that we, we do have people with judicial restraint that are on the bench that will not be sympathetic to these um, rather wild new theories of uh, corporate or tort responsibility and that will uh, allow those things to proceed, perhaps even to a jury where, uh, where you 
get a lot of sympathy and perhaps less focus on the law and some of these causes of action uh, are sustained. And uh, thirdly, is I think you probably need more discussions like this uh, where uh, some of those things can be exposed perhaps uh, for what they are, which is uh, perhaps more about uh, advocating some sort of social change or advocating for more money for the taxpayer or advocating for more money for trial attorneys as opposed to uh, really redressing a, a bona fide uh, cause of action that uh, is, is important to, to the state. So I think all of those things are needed, but I mean, as long as there's a, uh, an active um, trial lawyer bar who sometimes uh, has members of their, their uh, uh, group elected as attorney general, you're going to have those. I mean, we've had tobacco litigation, lead paint, breast implants, so there, there's always some new deep pocket that's being looked at is to be the next the next windfall uh, because business can certainly pay better than you and I as a Joe citizen can pay. And so I think that that trend will will continue. It's going to take a collective societal effort and some effort within the bar in order to rein that in. Yeah, I assume you're referring to Massachusetts versus EPA, U.S. Supreme Court decision. Really there was actually a case where they went after Midwestern uh, power companies. Well, that was, that was, None of them were in the states the AGs were from. That. Massachusetts is a separate issue. But that um, case where AG from Massachusetts argued they had standing based on a faulty affidavit, which was given by an official of an uh, environmental pressure group. Yeah, the Massachusetts versus EPA was, that one was a surprise to me. That was, uh, for those of you not familiar with it, it was basically a lawsuit that, to require the EPA to regulate carbon dioxide under the Environmental Protection Act because uh, because of global warming, which threatened to raise the sea level, which threatened the sovereign territory of the state of Massachusetts by covering it with water at some indefinite point in the future. And they won. Um, in answer to your question, at least on as to that precedent, I the court really stretched on finding standing in that case. And I think if it is revisited, they will draw a distinction between standing that a state might have in these kind of situations and an individual. Uh, so companies being sued by uh, individuals on this same theory that that uh, that there should be some kind of damage because uh, you're burning coal and it's going to raise the sea level and it's going to bury their uh, it's going to flood their uh, beach cottage may have standing problems at least in the federal courts and we'll have to see what the U.S. Supreme Court does. But I think they're going to decide that they're not going to let that go any farther. That'd be my best guess. There's a lot of discussion about uh, what boundaries mean. Boundaries no longer mean anything to attorneys general. And, and my problem is I can't just say, oh, you shouldn't be able to cross boundaries for any purpose. I think of, for example, I don't blame, I think it's Oklahoma who sued our, uh, the uh, chicken industry in Arkansas for polluting a river that runs into to Oklahoma. I can foresee me, if the Lar Wyoming, if there was enough people up there to actually pollute the <laughs> Laramie River, uh, I guess I could get concerned about that. But there's something about this, uh, the extraterritorial nature of these. As I recall, none of the AGs in the states where these power companies were, were party to the action. And it seems to me what we have there is a failure of, of Congress uh, to preclude that sort of activity. You know, what's frustrating to me in, in AGs, our raison, raison d'etre is state sovereignty. So we're always, 
But what's frustrating to me is I, I feel like the Congress is constantly usurping in areas they shouldn't, and then there's some obvious things that clearly are interstate commerce, uh, clearly uh, involve uh, interstate matters that they should be involved in and do not. And, and I think it's up to Congress to say uh, AGs cannot bring actions uh, because of, you know, uh, some pollutant source miles and miles away. That's a matter of uh, interstate commerce concern, a matter of exclusive federal concern. Well, there's one other thing I think we can do, and I think we're doing it in part by being here, um, and that's try to be vocal about our opposition, uh, as a few of us attorneys general, to these types of suits that are brought. And I think that can have an impact because, as Attorney General Southers and I were talking about earlier, um, we do go to these NAG meetings, the National Association of Attorney Generals meetings. Uh, and even though we have different philosophies on government from a lot of the different attorneys general, we do develop a level of collegiality. Um, and at that level, you do have an opportunity to influence these people. You have an opportunity to talk to these people. And I think it's important for those of us. I remember when I, I saw John here a week ago, and he says, you know, we're going to get a little, a little uh, bit of crap for doing this today. And I said, but none of us cared because we knew it was the right thing to do. Um, if the, pol the politically correct people can stand up and speak their viewpoints and their philosophy on government, um, those of us in the minority in uh, office as attorney general should be able to do so as well. And I think by continuing to voice our concerns about these types of lawsuits, especially if we happen to represent one of the states where one of these companies that's being sued actually resides, and we can then stand up and say, well, wait a minute, I'm the attorney general of this specific state, and I disagree with you. We've got the opportunity to at least make a little bit of an impact, and I think the panelists up here are people who are willing to do such a thing. Our next question comes from Mr. Schwartz. Thank you. Um, first, I compliment you on the panel, and second, I say I hope the next questioner doesn't have white hair. I mean, we get free seats on the metro, so I think uh, <laughs> enough already. But I'll ask uh, the question. We have filed amicus uh, briefs in Oklahoma, California, and Rhode Island, using some of the arguments that Mr. Stenberg articulated so well about delegating too much power to a contingency fee lawyer. And we also have the Private Attorney Retention Sunshine Act, which has the idea that if you're going to hire a contingency fee lawyer, you ought to do it in the open. And that's an ALEC, American Legislative Exchange Council bill. So that's our position. But last week I was debating Dickie Scruggs, who is a very capable billionaire a lawyer who generated the first, helped generate the first tobacco uh, suit, and he's a, a brother. We're close, I'm, we're close to each other. We both have an honorary degree from the same school. One year, one week later, we were, he was asked for $100,000, and they only asked me for $7.50 coupon. <laughs> so there are advantages um, sometimes in not being a billionaire. The question comes from Dickey's best argument, and I haven't heard it addressed. His best argument for these suits is as follows. He says that drug companies, companies that sell alcoholic-containing beverages, a whole vast number of companies create societal risks that in turn cost the state money and in focus on Medicaid. And these expenses should not be externalized. That isn't right. They should be absorbed by the companies. And in essence, that's what he is doing. And I won't give my answer to it. I'd like to hear your thoughts because that was clearly the best argument that Dickey made in his um, discussions in our debate. Do you tell him to talk to the legislature? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the answer. And I don't know why these guys uh, 
can't deal with the, the the role of the legislative body to set public policy. It's not the role of tort lawyers. Of course, they feel like it is. I mean, that's that's tort lawyers' mindset, but it shouldn't be the AG's mindset. And uh, somebody says we've got this terrible wrong out there that needs to be righted. I say go talk to the legislature, and I constantly say that, and I mean it very seriously. And if the legislature doesn't think it needs remedying, it's not the AG who ought to be doing the remedying. Yeah, I, I agree with John in that in the article that I wrote about contingent fees. I, I mentioned this in passing in, in relation to, to uh, tobacco. If if the legislature uh, or, the, or the, the governor, the state leadership feels that yes, you know, cigarettes are, and I, I don't, I know they do. My uncle died of emphysema from being a chain smoker, but no question that they're causing health problems. And I'd say there's no question that part of the state Medicaid expense is is paid dealing with health problems created by cigarette smoking by individuals. And the legislature has the full power to levy a cigarette tax, to increase it, to recover whatever they think they need from the cigarette tax to pay those expenses. You don't need lawyers. You don't need the attorney general. You've got a policy-making apparatus in the state that can impose a tax uh, or other uh, legislative remedies uh, make it illegal. Th through, mm -hmm. the, through the appropriate... Uh, process. Um, I'd like to throw in my two cents uh, in, in response to Mr. Schwartz's um, very excellent question, and that is uh, Mr. Scruggs was quoted, in, I believe, in Time or Newsweek as announcing that the trial lawyers constitute a fourth branch of government, and I would ask him where he finds that in either the state or federal constitutions. <laughs> I appreciate your comment on the developing collegiality, and maybe this should be originally directed to the Virginia Attorney General in light of the recent transportation bill, but any of you are happy to um, respond to it. Uh, I'd like to hear where you have maybe some bipartisan successes or highlights where you have worked, either inner branch or amongst a, the other party, to be able to further your goals. Well, I think we all have uh, similar statutory and constitutional responsibilities, uh, particularly consumer protection, uh, uh, various criminal justice matters. We've got a lot of common areas that we discuss uh, regularly at uh, either the Republican Attorney General Association, National Attorney General's Association, and everything uh, from dealing with gangs, uh, school safety, with uh, increases in, in counterfeiting of, of, of foreign goods coming into America. I mean, there's a number of, of, of very important uh, common uh, problems that transcend politics, and, and the National Association has been a good forum for uh, discussing that. And there are a fair number of, uh, of these sign-on letters that uh, have very, very broad support. 4050 Attorney General sign on because we all agree it's uh, it's the right thing to do. And if we do join together and put uh, and, and know that there's a, a, a common mission in support of our citizens, uh, we really are. A very powerful, uh, a very powerful force. I think where we, where we differ is is, is on this very issue of how active uh, the AG should should be, and whether every solution has or whether every problem has a government solution that the uh, state's top lawyer ought to ought to fashion. I think that's where that's generally the line of uh, of, of departure. But I think there are a broad number of things to do, and you could uh, probably go to the NAG website and find a lot of those things where there's been a lot of commonality and where we've been able to to get things done in the best interest of our citizens. And uh, crime and consumer protection are probably the top ones. And I can tell you from Wisconsin's perspective, I think we've had a great bipartisan relationship since I've become attorney general. 
and uh, and it has everything to do with what our focus is on, and that's on law enforcement and public safety. Uh, when you have an activist attorney general, you're going to naturally have a constituency that is opposed to what they're doing, and they're going to want to curtail their power and not work with them. Um, however, nobody wants to be against public safety. Nobody wants to be against law enforcement. And by striking the theme that we're actually supposed to strike within the context of the Attorney General's office, we've met with tremendous support. And uh, I can tell you, even though the budget process isn't done in Wisconsin right now and might not be done for a long time based upon what we're hearing, um, it appears as though no matter how the budget comes out, the Department of Justice in Wisconsin stands to gain a considerable increase in funding for uh, law enforcement and criminal justice initiatives. That is in one of the most uh, difficult fiscal periods that we've ever had in the state. Um, and in the last 10 years, perhaps, maybe even longer, there have been significant cuts to the Department of Justice funding. Uh, and we have a Democrat-controlled Senate and a Democrat governor. Um, we have people who are working together in a bipartisan manner on law enforcement issues because we're making it quite clear that we aren't advancing the agenda of J.B. Van Hollen. We're advancing the agenda of the people of the state of Wisconsin. We're not out there to grab headlines. We're out there to do good, and we're more than happy to share the credit in the process. Um, that sort of uh, message that we've sent has been tremendous in helping us and enabling us to do our jobs better. I'm wondering if uh, at the recent state attorneys general meeting or in any other discussions that you've had with your counterparts, if there's been any talk of filing suit or taking legal action uh, on the grounds of the federal Real ID Act. And if you can envision such action taking place, do you view that as an activist approach? Uh, there have been discussions about uh, the fact that uh, the states are very unhappy with the Real ID Act. I know in Colorado, most of the problems are coming from my client agencies uh, who uh, are very opposed to it. I have not, uh, I've heard discussions about just flat refusing to comply. I have not heard discussions about uh, bringing a lawsuit against the fe uh, federal government. But I, I think there is a groundswell um, as I understand it, the consequence is uh, if you don't comply, your state's driver's licenses won't be uh, accepted ID, so that they're very significant, and the public will obviously be very outraged about that if their IDs aren't or their driver's licenses aren't IDs. But uh, there's some real downsides to it uh, that we've had uh, detailed presentations at NAG meetings, but I have not heard a discussion of suits. What about you guys? Hi, uh, Laurie Meyer. This doesn't really go so much to activism because I guess it gets into an issue more of defense, but I'm curious, after um, Gonzaga Vidal was, um, was decided, it was like four years ago now, um, how much interest there is on the parts of the states in, um, in I guess, continued, um, I guess how much interest there is in the parts of the states in, really vigorous defense of Section 1983 cases or if the states are finding that after, um, after Rehnquist's decision that the, the, that the status of litigation has gotten a lot more stable than it perhaps was before that? <laughs> we, you know, it's, it's our job to when we're typically involved in 1983 litigation, it's when an agent of the state 
has been sued in a civil rights context. And we've always been very vehemently defending those cases. Um, I don't know. I, I can tell you that uh, we just got a million-dollar verdict reversed on appeal in the Tenth Circuit. We were very pleased about with a state patrolman, which we thought was a horrible, hor horrible verdict. Should never gone to the jury in the first place. Um, but I, I can't cite. Um, I think that was uh, essentially. I don't. I don't think that the Supreme Court's decision was the determining factor in the analysis. Uh, I, I think. Um, we don't we don't lose a heck of a lot of those cases uh, from a police exercise of police power perspective. Hi, my name is John Eskelson. I, I had a question. Uh, General McDonald actually mentioned about how in immigration context the federal government's abrogated its responsibility, and discussion has has happened over the course of this meeting on the uh, how at times you know when the federal government doesn't act, states need to act independently to represent their own interests. At what point, what decision-making process goes on to determine whether or not um, the state itself, I mean, you as need to represent your own state's interests, particularly, I mean, in, for example, the immigration context. And at what point do you say we, we as a state need to take action uh, to make sure our own interests are, are represented um, when the federal government isn't acting? I mean, I guess it, I mean, when does it become a, uh, a prudential issue rather than an activism issue? Well, I can start with those. I mean, most of the time we're really glad they don't act because it means that the states being able on uh, the states' rights issues that John and others brought up, I mean, we think that the federal government is, uh, if they're following Article 1, Section 8, they're supposed to, you know, protect the borders, print money, and stay out of the way and let the states do uh, pretty much everything else. But immigration and protecting our borders is clearly one that I think uh, falls under the role of the federal government. There's been some hope uh, with uh, the concerns raised in almost every state in the country over the last couple of years that um, that the federal government would have comprehensive immigration reform. And after three years of, uh, of waiting, uh, we still today have uh, essentially nothing uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, being, uh, that's being done. And so there are tools available to the states. Uh, I mentioned Section 287G of the 1996 Federal Immigration Act. There are other things that can be done under the current level of state jurisdiction. Uh, to uh, safeguard the sovereignty of the citizens, the borders of the state, to help to reduce crime committed by those who are legally present and committing crimes. And so uh, as I travel, I know I've got to, an outcry in certain parts of my state for action, uh, particularly those that are those immigrants who are involved in criminal activity. And so we're finding ways. Again, it's not me creating new theories. I guess it's being aggressive and using uh, existing state and federal tools uh, to act in the absence of uh, further efforts by the federal government. Again, I, I think that's active, but not the activism that we've been condemning uh, for perhaps from people on the left that have a different view of the office. It's just, I think, doing what we need to do with existing tools to, uh, to aggressively enforce the law. I think the activism comes in when you, if, even if the federal government isn't acting in a, in a particular area, the activism come in, comes in where the AG attempts to do so uh, without any authorization from the legislature, any direction from the legislature. Uh, in the immigration area, for example, um, I agree with uh, Bob. There's a whole bunch of the, the part of the immigration issue that's clearly out of the uh, scope of the uh, state AGs. But on the other hand, the legislatures have been passing all kinds of laws to try and deal in their particular states with requirements on um, 
employers to get a driver's license in Colorado now. You have to show uh, particular points, uh, particular things. We're enforcing those laws and spending an incredible amount of time issuing opinions for state agencies to do that. That's the appropriate role of the AG as opposed to, you know, if we decided to put together our own militia and go down to the border, I don't think that would be uh, the appropriate role of the AG. Um, we have a question um, involving the um, spate of news articles that came out in April of 2007 involving the student loan industry and a very prominent role played by the current New York uh, Attorney General Andrew Cuomo, who either threatened to or uh, did start investigative actions. And I'm just wondering if you have any insight in and perspective on those actions um, and also their extraterritorial reach beyond um, New York, inc including to companies based in Nebraska, I believe. Oh, you're talking Nelnet. Nelnet, yes. Well, yeah, the, I haven't read the, the settlement agreement, but the, Nelnet was involved in the student, student loan business, and without going into a lot of detail, they're based in Nebraska. That's their corporate headquarters. And they entered into a settlement agreement with the Nebraska Attorney General for the payment of a certain sum of money and discontinuing certain uh, business practices. And subsequent to that, other state AGs um, have uh, either threatened or filed legal actions uh, for similar violations uh, um, in their states. And it kind of gets back to what, what I commented earlier, which is, is that, that, that in the absence of a multi-state, a settlement with one state attorney general, even if it's the home office of the company, uh, no state attorney general has the legal ability to bind the attorney generals of any other states uh, or their states. So um, from a company standpoint, you would, I'm sure you would like to think that, well, if I settle with my home state attorney general who knows us best, that that ought to be the end of it. But that certainly is not is not the law and uh, you know had I been counseling them they're not a client had I been counseling them I would have suggested that they try and enter into a multi-state agreement and wrap the whole thing up uh, at one time because now they're going to have continuing they're going to have to go through this process at least one more time I think we have time for one more question Somebody's walking out just on the thread of one more question. <laughs> <laughs> so let's not push it. Hi, Tony Cotto with the U.S. Office of Special Counsel. Uh, recent years have seen a proliferation of ketom provisions on the state level, creating opportunities for private citizens to act as private attorneys general. Um, I'm just wondering if you have comments on this. Is it a good development? Does it help your offices or does it make it harder because there's a lot more claims to go through? The Colorado legislature has been debating a state key tom for two years now. It has not passed. Um, we have taken a sun, somewhat uh, neutral uh, position on it, that it's a matter of state public policy. We have weighed in when we on particular provisions that we think are good or not good in terms of the role of our office. Uh, I'm familiar with the, the key tom uh, and how it works in the federal level, and frankly, I thought it was... Uh, uh, relatively effective in terms of being a, a vehicle by which um, wrongdoing can be brought to the attention of, uh, uh, of the government and the government has an opportunity to participate or not and participate in uh, remedying that uh, wrongdoing. So I, I don't have any philosophical great deal of problem with ketoms. Uh, I do think there's some issues that have come to light in the most recent litigation uh, about uh, people whose job it is to, uh, to 
police businesses being the whistleblower and being able to uh, financially uh, uh, benefit from that. And I do think we have to that, – that's one thing that we're concentrating on in the, in the Colorado legislation. Um, I think generally most of the health most, – most of the, uh, the cases are in the health care area. And they are making their way through the uh, federal system. I personally don't believe that creating a state ketom is going to produce a, a, a whole different brand of of uh, litigation. My my fear is that it's going to just be multiple litigation with the same defendants, federal and state. And I'm not sure that uh, is good public policy. I want to thank everyone who came today. It was a terrific turnout. And also thank all of our attorneys general, a former and present, who took t the time to bring uh, a unique and refreshing perspective to this issue. Um, and again, thanks to all of you for coming.